This podcast is proudly supported by Drama Victoria. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri Willem people. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we are lucky enough to be speaking to the co-creator and director of The Mermaid, playing at La Mama as part of the VCE Drama 2021 playlist. Today we speak to Cassandra Fumi all about the production, how it was conceived, some key moments, we break down the dramatic elements present in the work as well as production areas and the theatrical style as well. It was a fantastic conversation on a fascinating piece of theatre. Without any further ado, I give you Cassandra Fumi. Welcome to the podcast, Cassandra Fumi. Hi, thanks for having me, Nick. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining us in lockdown. Thank you in so lockdown. much for doing that. Do you want to give us a, a brief uh, rundown of what's happened with mermaids in the last few days, or would you rather not talk about it? No, no. It's actually been, I mean, it's been a roller coaster of emotions. So we had just got into the theatre and we've done this huge bump in and we you know, built a swimming pool in the mama and moved the seats and kind of were there till four in the morning. And then the lockdown news hit really quickly for this one, actually. So we'd done four previews and then our liminal pool was left in La Mama, um, where it currently is, but we'll be back hopefully when the lockdown lifts. Hopefully it lifts on Tuesday night and we'll be back. And we've been doing Zoom rehearsals so that the cast don't forget their lines, which has been interesting. Um, kind of not unforeign to this project. This project's been going for three years. So last year we did lots of Zooming. I don't think we thought we'd be doing Zooming so close to being on stage. But, yeah, so we got four shows in. And now we're kind of waiting to be able to get back in the pool. All right. Amazing. The pool is great. Uh, coincidentally, we are rehearsing a show called Metamorphosis by Mary Zimmerman at the moment. So we are uh, feet in pools at the moment uh, as well. And a lot of the questions I'm going to be asking today are really focused on VC drama students. So basically helping them pick apart the show. Uh, but unfortunately, or fortunately, your show is so intrinsically interesting that I want to ask you about other things as well that don't just relate to the study design. So I hope anyone uh, listening forgives my just genuine interest in the project, but it's a really cool way that you've gone about designing this show and, and coming up with it. For those that don't know, you've actually been working with uh, young women writing and creating and making the show. Do you mind giving us just a, a brief rundown of, of what Mermaids is from your perspective? Yeah, so... I mean, it's a coming of age story and in a way almost like a piece of documentary theatre, which was not its intention. Um, the intention was to adapt The Little Mermaid, um, a fairy tale, and kind of tell a new morality tale for a new group of young people. And I kind of really wanted to throw this very old, very interpreted text that has had many iterations from Disney to statues to all these different things. I wanted to throw it to young people and teenagers and specifically teenage women and what their experience actually is as a 15-year-old girl growing up in the world today because this is a character who's been written about by, you know, mainly, well, all men really, except for Sophia Coppola who once wanted to direct an adaptation of The Little Mermaid and it was axed. So I was really interested in, um, we do reference that in the show, uh, in teenage voice and prioritising teenage voice 
particularly in a story where the character gives up her voice felt very important that it came from them yeah and that's probably going to be vital background to the show as well and the the short phrase that jumped out at me from the synopsis that I'd love to talk about or unpack, although there's a lots of really interesting stuff in there is that you referred to it as an absurd fever dream. Uh, and I think that, that that's fun to, can you ex- explore, explore that with us a little bit? Yeah, totally. I mean, this is absolutely a piece of absurdist theater. It's non-naturalism. It's our prince in the end gets reduced to a tennis ball. Um, the Prince brand of tennis ball. It's about smashing symbols and icons and what happens to the story when the Prince is a tennis ball. And, you know, we jump in and out. Someone said this beautiful thing, actually, that it feels kind of like scrolling through Instagram or watching TikTok, even though we've very much taken um, technology out of this world, even though obviously technology plays such a massive part now, even in the way we made the show. But um, it's very much... We're in one world where we're talking about Sofia Coppola and her Unmade Nomad film and one of our um, performers is talking about their experience um, being trans and being a trans teenager and then all of a sudden we're in the next scene where we're at the Coney Island Pride Parade in New York, which is a big art parade. You know, So we ended up using mermaids or maybe the structure of the Little Mermaid to explore mermaids as a bigger idea and this mythical creature that makes you feel powerful. And I think in the world we all feel quite powerless and there's something nice about the embodiment of this myth, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. So and it's very absurd. <laughs> cool. And, and on that, um, the elements of absurdism, it also seems a bit episodic perhaps if you're talking about you know, little episodes in there just taken from what you said. Can, can you explain maybe some of the conventions used in the performance and how they enhance the performance style? Are there, are there styles beyond absurdism? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely a bit of Brecht in there. Like we're aware that the, these are performers and there are times where they're storytellers and then they're King Tritons and they jump in, in and out of these modes of telling this story we've used verbatim theater a lot so the opening monologue is all word for word what theo said in the rehearsal room so it was a devised show so it's very much come from the teenagers uh we use a lot of tableaus in a way to kind of give these flash images and then we have a you know it's really physical it's a really physical piece of theater where that language and the physical language kind of exists at the same time as the text so it's not one or the other or one is more important than the other in a way the physicality probably is more important than the text if anything so we really use that the bodies in space to tell this story right well that's a great jump off to the next question is about how actors use their expressive skills to communicate their characters and yeah create that performance style well it's so interesting because i mean you know, so we've worked with a bunch of nine young people and they've all been on the project for three years. So the girl playing The Little Mermaid was 12 and now she's 15, about to turn 16, which is crazy. And so for her, she's so in her character. She is absolutely the mermaid in the way that she uses her body to transform her legs into fins and the way that she um, is so obsessed with land and is always looking above and above her and her gaze is always above. And then the chorus are kind of this interesting thing where they're in a way playing extensions of themselves. So the costume design has been designed 
around them and who they are, inspired by C-Punk, but who they are as teenagers in the world. And this is a bunch of teenagers who never would have met if it wasn't for this project. So they're all at different schools and, you know, they're all different ages and they, as storytellers and as members of the chorus, they're very much just teenagers. But then they take on the role of King Trident or Flounder who kind of gets eaten in one of the scenes of the play as the mermaid kind of says goodbye to her childhood, I guess, and both, you know, is also a way of us kind of um, garbaging the Disney interpretation of this character in a very literal sense to consume it and, um, you know, eventually it would Does the chorus use their actions and gestures and movements to to eat the fish? Like is that is chorus movement a really important part of this? Really important part of it, yeah. So there's a lot of like they'll breathe in together and they'll breathe out together and we did a lot of viewpoints, which is a Anne Bogart um, kind of taught physicality movement work that kind of comes with dance, really blends it from New York. Um, And we used a lot of viewpoints in the making of this work, which is where you, you know, when one stops, you all do that ensemble building stuff where you start to kind of, you know, we worked a lot with the idea of schools of fish and that the chorus was this school of fish um, where no one was the leader, but everyone was the leader. Great. Wonderful. Um, it seems like the expressive skills are going to be really easy to analyze when the students go back and do their sacks. They can give a hundred examples of how yep. voice and movement and gesture are all used. That's excellent. Um, also lack of voice is so important in this. Oh, like, great. So stillness and silence. Yeah. And then who has the mic? Who doesn't? The little mermaid never gets the mic until the very last scene. And then, you know, at the end, she again has lost her voice when we go back to the cyclical storytelling and there's kind of deafening silence at the end of the work that only feels deafening because there's been sound the entire show um but that silence and stillness is very much used as the character gives up her voice beautiful i can't wait Uh, so we're talking a little bit about dramatic elements for a little bit um and we're going to break them up into small chunks but do you think mood, rhythm, and or tension are manipulated specifically in this piece that move beyond reality? Do you think you do things, you said this is a very non-naturalistic work or work that moves beyond reality of life has lived. Do you think mood, rhythm, or tension play into that? Oh, yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, the mood of feeling like we're underwater when we're not, it's really there. And that came from our lighting designer and the palette that her and Dan used um, to create this swimming pool that, you know, at times bubbles fall from the sky and fog comes out and that idea of this um, feeling that this character has of being entrapped but also the greater mood and, and world of the work which does have this feeling of being wet or this texture we kept talking it needs to feel, you know, fluid. It needs to have this feeling of that even though, of course, we know there isn't water and actually I find it incredibly interesting that there is a lack of water, that it is pool, no water. You know, that was a very intentional choice to do this with no water but instead allow the audience to imagine that we're, you know, at the bottom of an ocean and this is a mermaid instead of being at the bottom of a pool and this is a 15-year-old girl. Um, But also the tension, I mean, the story reaches this incredible crescendo and I think maybe the biggest tension of the work is when, the young people are just existing as they are on stage and you can see, you know, what has stayed after three years of development, what's still in it, what's still important to them. 
So I feel like the tension raises the stakes for the character, um, which I guess absurdism does focus more on character than narrative. So the tension does that, but also the tension kind of comes from them and their frustrations and how teenagers can often feel unheard and how we need to hear them more, I guess. Beautiful. And is there chorus in the work in terms of the rhythm of the chorus or the movement? You talked about School of Fish. I wonder if the, if that comes out in the rhythm of the words or the poetry or the Yeah, prose. there's a few moments the sisters talk together. So there's a few moments where they'll go, you know, let us be happy with our 300 years of life. Surely that is enough. Because um, it's always very ambiguous. I think in the fairy tale, the little moment was kind of wanting legs to get a, a mortal soul. As in a Disney, it very much was about a man and that she wasn't going to be happy unless she was with someone, which, of course, is a very patriarchal idea. Um, but, yeah, so there's a bit of chorus work where they'll say things together. We also have a section called The Story where they narrate it together in different bits, and that's very choral. But I guess this is an unmasked Greek chorus, and that was very intentional. Well, very specific. Thank you. Unmasked okay. Greek chorus. Do you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? There we go. Yes, unmasked <laughs> Greek chorus. Great, great little catchphrase. Okay. Um, all about our contrast, conflict, and climax, the three Cs. Um, you talked about a moment of tension, building, building, building to, to a climax or perhaps an anti-climax. Or... Yeah, I mean, the climax is when she goes to the sea, which we kind of tended to focus all of this under the sea. We thought the more interesting stuff happened under the sea. So, um that's the climax of the work. And I think actually the climax is the silence. I've always referred to that as the silence of the work. And it's building, 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 building. And then there's this kind of um, code at the end uh, where the chorus give their reviews. And I guess the irony and the bit of tragedy that at the end, all that's left is this statue at the bottom of the ocean um, that we keep referring back to the Copenhagen statue. So I would say in terms of climax, that's very much what the climax of the piece is and then in terms of conflict I mean the biggest conflict I think in this is between the little mermaid and herself and you know this character but in a lot of ways is an anti-hero and yet society has made her that as well so you know in a way maybe we just need to have a better set of values as a society or stories that we tell that don't tell young women to give up their voice and change who they are for a man. You know, yeah. And as, does Disney that, as Disney definitely does. Uh, and does this conflict or climax manifest itself uh, in ways that move beyond reality of life? Is there, do you see that inner conflict manifested through movement or music or, or costume? Oh, hugely. Or, yeah. yeah, hugely in movement and hugely in costume. So we call the last act the opera. Um, and it's all very much, you know, it's structured like an opera and the costumes become completely absurd. So this mermaid tail that Theo always imagined and you see them kind of moving with this mermaid tail because a lot about, um, uh, yeah, and then in the third act, it's this incredible flower skirt that kind of took a designer months to make and you only see it on stage for 10 minutes. But it's this, like, you know, and the sea witch is played by a child and all of a sudden as we're building to this climax, these costumes are becoming more and more absurd. Flounder, who is now dead, has this huge dead flounder on their head. And, you know, it all becomes more heightened. And that was a very intentional choice to use the theatrical conventions that we have almost at their most heightened, but beginning in a very low sense. You know, at the bottom, it's just, you know, a girl wearing some jeans and a pool toy. 
And by the end, she's this kind of mermaid in the way that theatre can present it, which, of course, is always a game, which is what I love. Yeah, it is. I love that it's a game. We're all complicit in our pretending. <laughs> uh, and the uh, the contrast, uh, I'm, I'm going to guess the sea witch and, and, and the mermaid uh, contrast. I can imagine the tennis ball. Uh, <laughs> contrast is there is are there ways that contrast is shown throughout the work yeah I mean it's kind of interesting contrast and then connection like in a way the little mermaid has this connection with the sea witch when there's an old version where the sea witch was the little mermaid if she had decided to kill the prince so in the original she was given a knife and told that she if she killed the prince she could return back to the sea and so her sisters gave their hair to the sea witch uh, for a knife so in the final moment, you see them, but they're wearing, you know, um, swimming caps as bald heads and holding up this hair to the sea witch and these mermaid tails, um, which is the first time you kind of see a tail. There's no tails in this show. So almost the contrast that exists between the sea witch and the little mermaid, the sea witch becomes the little mermaid as we kind of go back in time and she gets into the pool and all of a sudden we repeat this story because until we're ready, to tell new ones this cyclical story will just continue well yeah. look at that great uh and the last two dramatic elements we might touch on is the use of space and sound now you've talked a little bit about the the pool in in the work and the idea that the light forms the bubbles for un, under the water and things like that uh can you talk a little bit about how you use space maybe to move beyond reality or in unconventional ways or ways that you think enhance the theme of the work and then perhaps touch on sound yeah, so I feel like the liminality of the pool as a space was amazing for us because it led to lots of performance possibilities. So it meant that this space would become a stage where there's a stand-up gig. It meant that, you know, when they climb the ladder, they're kind of climbing into adulthood. But the liminal space above nowhere they climb up into and the Little Mermaid is never able to get to, so she can never get to land. She can never go above. And, you know, above the tennis balls come flying through the space and all of these things that are unseen to her, I guess. And I think because it's so physical, we return a lot back to motifs. So the mermaid's grotto is always in the exact same place in the space. We've got these ledges that kind of entrap the little mermaid in this pool where the chorus are allowed, but she never kind of is unless it's in a dream state. So it's kind of all these rules of the space that we then kind of break when she finally leaves the pool. It's this big dramatic moment where she's going to find the sea witch and, you know, find a new water. And then in terms of sound, I mean, sound for me as a director is like my favourite thing. I love sound. Uh, so it was really important in this work. We had um, a composer who improvised with the performers. So a lot of it has come out of their physicality. And then there was a sound designer and then also Ivy, who was originally a performer in the work, who was a 16-year-old, came in and played bass over the top of everything to kind of just allow that teenage voice to be not only represented in the space, but also sonically and backstage. Uh, so how are production roles such as lighting, set and costume and sound used symbolically in the performance? You've talked a little bit about lighting. I wonder if there's other symbols. Um, well, the lighting and sound and the set actually have all really worked together So to tell this story. And they all, you know, they were very inspired by the Florida Project, which is a film, an amazing film about a bunch of kids playing. So the palette was very inspired by that. 
But in terms of how they work together, they've all had to kind of, I guess, go, okay, what is the world of the ocean that we're going to tell? Because there's so many different worlds of the ocean that you could tell. But what are we going to do? And how are we going to use these elements to tell a story that is cohesive so that we're not all telling different stories in different oceans, I guess. But they're used symbolically in lots of ways. I mean, the way that the lighting is also within the pool. So there's a lot of set electrics in this show where the lighting comes from as much from in the pool as from the rig. So you kind of, it feels very alive, the pool. And Rachel Burke, our amazing line designer, and Dan Barber, our set designer, have also been on the show for three years. So we've done many different designs of this show and kind of in a lot of ways came back to some really early images on the Pinterest board a long time ago. Um, and I think that because of their synchronicity, it has meant that symbolically we're all in the same place, I guess, which has really helped. And is the idea of young people not having a voice the major symbol in the work, or would you say there's another theme that is probably more, more enhanced or exaggerated or heightened or highlighted by their production design? I mean, I think uh, voice is definitely the major theme of the work, voice and lack of, uh, but also, you know, I guess what I love about theatre or what really um, creatively turns me on about it is this imagining that can happen. And I think that the costumes really enhance that. And I guess that's where the absurdist fever dream comes from, which is this climax in the opera that, you know, you don't just get it at a start, but eventually more elements of costume come into play um, to be able to tell this story to the point where the prince ends up as a giant tennis ball you know, when he was once a little one and games like that. This sounds like a pretty fascinating piece of theatre that I'm very excited to see. Oh, my so, gosh, you have to come, Nick. Oh, Next absolutely. Week. <laughs> uh, so thank you hugely for your time today, Cassandra Fumi. No worries. Thanks for having me on the show. It's nice to chat. Absolutely. It's just nice to chat, isn't it? Thank oh you. Oh, my God, so nice to chat. <laughs> <laughs> You can find out more about The Mermaid by going to lamama.com.au. There's also a link in the description of this episode. That is all for this episode of The Aside. We have a load of episodes in the bank, so feel free to go through those and find one that piques your interest. If you have a question, please do not hesitate to ask us and send us an email at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thank you very much to Eltham College for letting us record here, to Drama Victoria for your ongoing support, to Aaron Searle for providing the music, and of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>